Okay, I guess we'll go ahead and try to get started here. Let me have an opening word of prayer. Lord, we do thank you now just for the privilege of coming to you, knowing that you are our Heavenly Father and that you have made us your children by way of the new birth. Lord, we thank you that our citizenship is in the heavenly realm, that we may be in this world, but we are no longer of it. And Lord, I know for me that's an encouraging thing as we see this world spiraling downward. But knowing that our future is not tied to this world, it's tied to your realm. Lord, we thank you for your precious scriptures that reveal to us you and your ways, reveal to us us and our need, and Lord, reveal to us your provision to meet us in our need. We thank you for Paul's letter to the church in Colossae and its focus on the sufficiency of Christ. Lord, we thank you that everything we are, everything we have, everything that we look forward to is found in Christ and Christ alone. And Lord, may we never be guilty of looking elsewhere, but may our eyes become increasingly fixed on him who is both the author and finisher of our faith. Lord, as we come to the end of our study of Colossians, I just pray that the truths that we learned will remain with us in the days and years ahead and will have their impact in our daily walk. First, in the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, we're going to be finishing up Colossians this week, one way or the other. Uh, Next week, of course, is prayer, and then the following week, on the fifth when we have a fifth Sunday, uh, Thomas does something, and then, uh, as I said the other week, we're taking off for the summer because we're going to be gone off and on a bit. In fact, the first Sunday in June, we've got to be down in Fort Myers, Florida, uh, at the church that sent us out to the mission field and has remained our sending church, and we're speaking there. Uh, on the first Sunday in June, and so we're just going to be in and out of town a bit through the summer. In the fall, we are planning to do uh, a study of the principles of spiritual uh, growth. I hope everybody will come out for that study. It's a pretty significant uh, study. It has had a huge impact in Jonelle and my life, and we've seen it impact Many, many other lives saw the impact of it in many of our students uh, at the school as we did that study once a year. And there were a few years we did it twice, <laughs> uh, twice a week uh, during the year. And just uh, saw so many lives impacted. So, um, yeah, just plan on that in the fall. But I, again, we're going to be gone a bit. And also, once I start on that study, I want to be able to have some consistency to it. And uh, with the summer and us being gone and many of you coming and going because of vacation, uh, it's not a real good time to have any sort of a continuity to what you're doing. And so figured we'd wait till we could have a little bit of continuity. Now today we're getting to the final comments of uh, Paul. 
uh, his uh, largely its greetings, and we we may get to looking at them, or we may not. <laughs> um, uh, the Lord just kind of laid on my heart to try to um, maybe tie up some loose ends uh, in our study of Colossians. Uh, so, uh, to an extent, I'm going to be talking off the cuff today. Uh, that can be risky, I guess, but um, but it's just kind of the way the Lord's been leading me. If we get time, we'll look at His closing greetings. Uh, they are not totally unimportant, but there's no real doctrinal truth found therein. Uh, what they do accomplish is they show that the letter was written to real people and that real people were involved in writing it and delivering it and uh, shaping it. Uh, and it does uh, uh, lend a very personal side uh, to the letter. So if we have time, we'll, we'll look at that. If not, uh, you can largely glean what Paul says in those closing remarks by reading through it. Now, throughout the last few weeks, we've been talking about putting off the old man and putting on the new. And, uh, you know, that um, the various uh, commands that Paul gives us uh, as we move towards the end of the letter, uh, what he tells wives to do and husbands to do and parents to do and children to do and slaves to do and masters to do it's, and so forth, it's all based on putting on our new life in Christ. It's not about changing our old Adamic nature. And I've emphasized over and over again, all too often Christians read these things and they go back and they try to change who they were in and of themselves. And you aren't going to change it. You aren't going to fix it. You can spend years trying. You will not change your old Adamic nature. It will remain the same. But we have a new life, a new life in Christ. And our new man, we've seen, is not as some of the translations translate, is not a new self. Self is what I am independently. My new life, my new man, has a symbiotic relationship with Christ. It cannot operate independently from Him. Anytime I try to live independently from Him, I'm going to be living on the basis of my old Adamic nature, which has been crucified but is not dead and gone. And we talked about that. All too often, people when they see the word crucified, they think it's synonymous with death. No, it's not. It's a place of judgment that will lead to death. Go back and read the crucifixion account. The two thieves are crucified with Christ alongside Him, and there's a whole lot of talking going on. There's one thief who is hurling insults at Christ, hanging on the cross. Now, yes, ultimately he was going to die. 
But crucifixion is a place of humility, I mean humiliation, a place of, of judgment, a, pay, a place that leads to death. The world is said to be crucified to us. The world's not dead, it's not gone. But it has no real hold on us in Christ. The old man is seen to be dead. Not dead. The old man is said to be crucified. We are seen to be dead to it. Our relationship to it has been severed. But it is put in this place of judgment. The regulations of the law are seen to have been nailed to the cross. They aren't seen as having been uh, obliterated. And we've got to understand that our old man is there. It's in a place of judgment. It has no right to us. But if we let it, it will rule our lives. Now, in the complete green letters, there's a, a very short chapter, chapter 39 that has a really good quote that helps us understand a little bit more about what the new man is all about. And I just want to read it. It only takes a few minutes. It's a quote from a message by Norman Dowdy. And it says, When we say that Christ's life has come into us to displace ours, what do we mean? We do not mean that this life of the Lord Jesus has come to displace our personality. When I speak of our fallen life, I do not mean the human personality as such. I mean the poison that permeates our personality. The poison of sin that has degraded and defiled and distorted our humanity. It's not that this new life of the Lord Jesus comes in to take the place of our personality, to take the place of our faculties created by God, but it comes to take the place of the sinful life which is operating in our personality and employing our faculties. The vessel is the same, but the contents are different. The same vessel, the same person, the same faculties, but the contents are different. No longer this sinful element, but the very holy nature of the Lord Jesus Christ, filling, uh, penetrating, permeating. Our Father is not seeking to abolish us as human beings and have the Lord Jesus replace us. He's seeking to restore us as human personalities so that we may be the vehicle through which Christ will express Himself. Therefore, you find that whenever God gets hold of a person, instead of abolishing his personality, he makes it what he intended it to be. Redemption is the recovery of the person, not the destruction of him. And when the Lord Jesus is in us is brought to the place he is aiming for, there will not be an atom of the old life left, but the man will be left glorified in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's a pretty significant little summation of things. God's not trying to make us all clones. He's trying to rescue our personalities, what He created us to be from the clutches of sin.
and have Christ as that inner life force that brings out of us what God designed us to be. God doesn't want you to be like me and me to be like you. He made me who I am. He made you who you are. But sin has, you know, that old Adamic nature, that sin nature has taken you and used it for its purposes. And God wants to rescue you from that. And have you become all that you have the potential to be in Him. You know, it was a big step in my Christian life when I really came to understand that God just wanted to use me. He didn't want me to be someone else. A passage of Scripture that the Lord used in my life, there's been a number of different passages over the years, but just with regards to this, I heard a message spoken on Jacob wrestling with God. And you know, it's interesting as Jacob wrestles with God and he pleads with God to bless him, God asks him an interesting question. He says, who are you? Who are you? Now this is God. (laughs) Why on earth does he ask Jacob, who are you? I think it's because 20 years before when Jacob sought the blessing of his father, he lied about who he was. He said, I am Esau. See, Jacob didn't believe that the the blessings that had been promised to Abraham and Isaac could come to him without him being somebody else. He was unwilling to to acknowledge who he was to God and say, God, I am Jacob. I am the deceiver. But now he's wrestling with God. And in reality, it's... Uh, that wrestling match is very much a physical picture of what had been going on with Jacob and God for 20 years. Jacob had been wrestling with God for 20 years. And now he's in the midst of this wrestling match, and God says, who are you? And finally he is honest. He says, I am Jacob, a name that means heel grabber means deceiver. Bless me. And God blessed him and He gave him a new name. A new name that reflected what had brought him to this point. The name Israel, which means Godfighter. (laughs) It was a name that reminded him of what had brought him to this point. A struggle with God. And you know, I I realized at that point that a lot of my struggles in, in life and ministry had been that I was comparing myself to others and thinking I have to be more like this for God to use me. More like my dad. More like Linwood Bowden. More like, you know, some of these men that I had looked up to. 
And God impressed on my heart, no, you don't need to be someone else. You're Rick Barth. Come to me with all your flaws. Come to me with all your struggles. Come to me with all your failures. And just trust that I can take you and I can use you. I don't want you to become somebody else. I want you to become who you have the potential to be in Christ. That's what I want for you. And it lifted a huge pressure off my shoulders. I know my dear friend in Ireland, a fellow who shared the pulpit with me a lot and kind of took over when I left, Peter Shields, He told me once, he said, you know, when I first got saved and started trying to serve the Lord, everybody was trying to press me into a mold of what I should be like as a teacher. And he said, it's only been as I've come to a realization that God wants to use my personality. He wants to use me. And it's only as he recognized that, that he really came, came out as a teacher. And he certainly wasn't like me and I wasn't like him. The Irish talk about things being as different as chalk and cheese. You can't get much more different than chalk and cheese. Peter and I were as different as chalk and cheese. He's the extreme opposite of my personality. But the Lord used us both. See, putting off the old and putting on the new doesn't mean that we all suddenly become the same. It's we, be, we become who we truly have the potential to be. My personality and Jonelle's personalities are always going to be worlds apart. But God uses us both. But we need to come to to grasp that God's not trying to do away with us as people. He's trying to replace our life source with the life of Christ. As we live in union with Him, people will see what we are really meant to look like in Christ. Now last week, of course, we ended on the note of Paul talking about, you know, our dealings with the world and our words being seasoned with grace. And he compares grace to to what salt does for food. Uh, Again, when we were in Ireland, a lot of their food was pretty bland. And we'd have some of our Irish friends over and uh, we'd make a meal. And of course, they'd go on and on about how good it is and what on earth did you do? And mainly it was we put salt in and a little pepper, you know. (laughs) We seasoned it. Instead of it just being boiled potatoes with nothing added you know we we added a little bit of salt and pepper and that was pretty much it yeah butter of course they used a lot of butter and it was real butter it was Kerrygold butter it was the Rolls Royce of butter Uh, but uh, 
Yeah, seasoning makes a difference. And Paul says that in our dealings with the world, if grace is seasoning what we say, it'll go a long ways to making our message more palatable. And I pointed out that throughout history, sadly that has not been the case. In fact, we talked about the fact, you know, uh, Philip Yancey, who wrote What's So Amazing About Grace, talked about entering into conversations with people as he traveled and asking them, when I say evangelical Christian, what comes to mind? And he says they named all sorts of things, like, you know, being, um, you know, anti-abortion, being against uh, gay rights, against uh, is mostly political stuff. He said not once in all of his travels, not once in talking to people, has anybody ever talked about uh, evangelical Christians being gracious. He said apparently we don't give off that fragrance. And you know, I've thought a bit about that as coming into today. And I think the thing that has struck me is a lot of the times we don't give off the fragrance of grace is because a lot of times believers don't even really fully understand grace. Well, we throw that word around. You know, and we, we talk about by grace we've been saved. And a lot, I think most of us understand that. But we don't understand that grace impacts everything in the Christian life. It all flows from grace. And if I do not fully understand grace, I'm not really going to show forth grace to others. I've thought, you know, this probably is a subject I ought to take on some Sunday when I'm asked to fill the pulpit. But right now, I'll just talk a little bit about it here. Because I think it's significant. You know, as I've thought back over my Christian life, in my life of ministry, I think every step forward has entailed coming to a little deeper understanding of grace and how it fits in. You know, one of my biggest steps early on was coming to understand fellowship. Fellowship with God. Because I had long believed that every time I sinned, it broke fellowship. And then I had to confess it to get back in fellowship until I sinned and broke fellowship. And I didn't really realize it then, but I do now. In a sense... I was resting fellowship on merit. As long as I merited it by living without sin, then I could have fellowship. That's a very law-based mentality. I had to come to understand, look, fellowship is something that God offers me by His grace. He is faithful and just to forgive me no matter what I do. But fellowship 
involves me walking very closely with Him. And in 1 John chapter 1, we're told that the, in order for me to have fellowship with God, I've got to be willing to walk in His light. Because God is light. You can't walk close to a source of light without having the light shine on you. And he points out that, that one of the things the light's going to do is reveal sin. And we can either let the sin cause us to flee from His light, or we can let the sin push us into His arms and embrace His forgiveness and embrace His answers and move forward. And that changed so much for me in my Christian life. Because for years, I had been so focused on my sin. I was more focused on my sin than I was on my Savior. And once I began to understand how grace makes possible this walk of fellowship with God despite my struggles, despite my failures, He became more of my focus. And I quit fleeing from Him every time I sinned. I quit trying to hide from Him. I began to be more willing to acknowledge it to Him and embrace His forgiveness and walk on. I really came to grasp that fellowship is part of the grace package. And you know... I, that began a lot of my growth, and a lot of that started while we were still here in Mississippi, while I was still out at FOA. And then we began, I began under, learning of my position in Christ and all that I am and have. I began to grow in my understanding of that, and that continued as we went to Florida. It continued through our years in Ireland. Especially as we met with a lot of different couples, you know, there for a while, almost every night of the week, we were meeting with a different couple and we were going through a lot of these, uh, well, we were going through the complete green letters with them. And it wasn't just helping them grow, it was us wrestling with these things. And us coming to understand these things. And having the privilege of seeing how God's grace has provided for this whole new life and seeing, watching Him take men and women who were so defeated in their Christian life that they wanted to give up and walk away and see Him bring them to maturity over a period of years. I saw the power of His grace to change lives. And it made me come to appreciate it more and more. And then He brought us back to Wisconsin and took us to the school. And I shared a little bit last week just about God really opening my eyes to the power of His grace in, in the lives of our students. of being willing to deal with struggling, failing believers. 
and to offer them grace and to see God transform them. Somebody gave me big thing saying grace to hang over my desk. Because the students came to know how much grace meant to me. Because everything I am, everything I have, everything I hope to be is by His grace. I don't deserve to be up front here. I haven't deserved to have the privilege of being used by God in literally thousands of lives over the years. I don't deserve that. But He has allowed me to be part of that. Everything you have, everything that's of any value, it's all by grace. Even any rewards you receive in eternity will be by grace. Because anything that this old Adamic life tries to do for God will go up in, in, uh, in smoke. It's the wood, hay, and stubble. What will God consider reward worthy? What Christ does through me. Basically God says, I want Christ's life to be flow through you. I want to use His life to accomplish my work and then I will reward you for what I did. That's grace. I'm not going to merit one thing from the Lord. Not one reward. But Christ will. Man, when I look back on my life from this point in time, and I know where my flesh could have taken me, and I look at where Christ has taken me, I become so overwhelmed by the grace of God. I cannot think about His grace without it overwhelming me. Now, again, so often grace is misunderstood. You know, not too long after we moved to to Waukesha, we were at a church one Sunday, and the pastor was speaking on grace. And he walked across the front of the stage, and he said, over here is legalism. And then he walked all the way across to the other side of the stage, and said, here is license. And then he walked back to the middle of the stage and he said, here is grace. And I turned to Jill Nell and said, no, it's not. Jill Nell always loves that because my whisper normally isn't, <laughs> isn't that quiet. It's not as bad as my dad's. My dad's whisper, the whole church could basically hear. Uh, it was only two or three rows with me. <laughs> but, but I said, no, it's not. Grace is not a moderate view between legalism and license. Grace operates on a whole different plane 
It operates in a whole different realm, a whole different sphere. Now, I would agree that legalism and license are just two extremes of the fleshly realm. Legalism and license both operate in the realm of self-effort. Legalism is real focused on on a law system. It's very self-righteous. You know, it's, it's, you know, focus on what I need to do. License basically lowers the bar to where anybody can step over it. And its big emphasis is on freedom, but a very distorted view of freedom. Freedom to sin, not freedom from it. Grace is the realm in which we are to live. A realm totally marked by unmerited favor. Mercy is when God doesn't give us what we deserve. Grace is when He gives us what we don't deserve. And it does not operate down on this level of self-effort. It, you know, operates on the level of who we are in Christ, what we have in Christ. It operates in the realm of grace. That's what marks it. And it produces true life. The very life of Christ. It brings true peace. Peace with God. The peace of God. And it brings true freedom. Freedom to live righteously. To live without being in bondage to sin. Freedom to be involved in things that are of eternal value. That's the realm of grace. But too many see grace as just being middle ground between legalism and license. And it's not if you don't come to see that grace operates in a whole different sphere. You really aren't going to understand all that you are, all that you have. All that you have the potential to be. You're going to be trying to live that middle ground. And that's not where the answers are. You know, I threw a... This was a slide I did for school at one point. A contrast between legalism and license. Both legalism and license rely on self-effort. It's all about me trying to do. Grace relies on Christ's provision. It's not about what I'm going to do. I am simply available to utilize what, to let Him do His work in and through me. 
Legalism and license both have a tendency to produce pride. The licentious believer is proud of his freedom. A very distorted view of freedom, but man, he's proud. I can do whatever I want to do. The legalist is proud of his righteousness. Grace produces humility. And you know, I, I think several cl- uh, classes ago, I, I pointed out that humility is not thinking lowly of yourself. Humility is not thinking of yourself. That's why grace produces humility. It doesn't give me a low view of myself. It causes me to be, view, be focused on Christ, not on myself. The Christian life's not about me. It's Christ in me. Both license and legalism look at things horizontally. By that I mean they're always looking at things from a world's perspective, a man's perspective. How I look in the eyes of others. Grace looks at things vertically. How God sees me. How God sees what's going on. Has a vertical perspective. I know Miles Stanford at one point said, we're often exhorted to keep looking up. He said, we really need to be exhorted to keep looking down. (laughs) We need to be looking down from God's perspective. Seeing things from the way He sees them. License and legalism both produce death. Because they bring us into the realm of self-effort. They bring us into the realm of sin. And the wages of sin are always death. Not necessarily physical death. But sin, you know, when Paul says the wages of sin is death, he's writing to believers. Go back and look at the context of the passage. Sin produces one thing, death. It destroys marriages, it destroys parent-child relationships, it destroys careers, it destroys friendships. Grace produces life. It's very life-giving. License and legalism tend to both produce judgmental attitudes towards others. The licentious person are just judgmental about those that don't, you know, take their uh, lax view towards, uh, you know, sin. The legalist has a judgmental view towards those who don't have their strict view uh, of, of, you know, what's the right thing to do. Grace produces graciousness towards others. As I come to understand how God deals with me in grace, day in, day out, year in, year out, it causes me to be more gracious towards others. If I think I am meriting anything from God, I'm going to have the expectation that others do the same. 
But as I come to understand everything I am, everything I have, is freely given by God, I can be very gracious towards those around me. And that was something that it took years for God to bring me to, and I'm still not totally there. Jonelle will tell you I have a hard time being gracious towards ungracious people. I find it a lot easier to be gracious towards those who are struggling, those who are failing. But grace produces graciousness. Legalism produces faux freedom, fake freedom. They aren't really free. They're still in bondage to sin, very much in bondage to sin. Legalism produces faux righteousness, fake righteousness. They aren't really righteous. It's a self-righteousness. It's not a true righteousness. Grace produces true freedom and and righteousness. It produces the real thing. And people can see that. They can spot a fake. And they can spot what's real. Licentious people emphasize God's love. Again, it's a distorted view. God's love, so He's fine with anything. Rather than realizing that God's love relentlessly pursues our best, even when we would happily settle for less. But it's a distorted. They real emphasize on God's love. The legalist has an emphasis on God's righteousness. God is a righteous God. Grace has an emphasis on the reality that God's love is satisfying His righteousness. It brings about a balance between them. Now Paul talked about, again, our dealings with the world being seasoned by grace. And then if we had read through the last remaining verses, which we won't have time to do, he ends on the note, grace be with you. Paul always, always, always comes back to grace. Because certainly in this letter, Paul has developed the fact that Christ is the one and only source of everything we need for the Christian life. But all of Christ's provisions come to us by the grace of God. And I hope, if you haven't really come to understand and appreciate grace, you will. And I hope you can look back on your life and see the journey God has taken you through to bring you to just whatever level of understanding of grace you have at this point. And I pray, Lord, let me really come to understand your grace. Because the Christian life rests heavily on understanding grace. You cannot merit anything from God. Anything good that's come from my life has been by Him.
and Him alone. And the glory belongs to Him. I think that's why in Revelation where those around the throne are seen casting their crowns at the Savior's feet. Why? Because there's this acknowledgement, I don't deserve this crown. You do. It was your work. It was what you did through me. You're the one who deserves the crown, not me. And I hope we all, when we stand before the Lord, can look back and see how the Lord used us in ways that we didn't even see, but were the outflowing of His life in us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You now just for Your grace. Lord, I cannot thank You enough for it. Without it, I would be a lost sinner. But because of Your grace, I'm a child of the Most High God. I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm part of the bride of Christ. And Lord, I have a glorious eternity awaiting me. I have not merited any of this. And I have not merited any of the rewards that might be awaiting me. But Lord, it has all come from Christ in me. And I pray that He might increasingly be seen in me. And that less of me would come to the forefront and more of Him. So that others might be drawn to Him while they still have the opportunity. So Lord, we thank You just for the weeks we've spent in Colossians. And Lord, we just pray that these truths might remain with us for the years to come. For it's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen.